All right, so we're going to continue um, looking at what we looked at last week as promised. We, um, we didn't quite make it through. I had some great things to say, and I can't find my notes, but that's okay. We'll, um, we'll make it through uh, and get some time for, time for discussion and questions. Let's see here. Goodness. Those lecterns are small. Uh, so Lord's Day 10 is what we're on. We're still talking about providence. A word that gets used a lot in Reformed circles. Um, a helpful word. And a word that I hope that will become more and more part of our vocabulary. Um, last week, before I forget, last week it was brought up, you know, can the Christians say the word luck? Or luckily? Or fortunately? Okay, that, that's good. So before, I, before we dive in, I want to pick up right there. And, uh, you know, we don't want to be overly legalistic about this, you know, and, uh, oh, you said a bad word kind of thing. However, it is important that we have a vocabulary that comports with our worldview and theology. And there is no such thing as luck or fortune. And uh, we'll, we'll review very briefly uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism, which is basically the two worldviews that are uh, most common today. Uh, but we, you know, when we say things like, uh, well, luckily, you know, I made it to the gas station before I ran out of gas. Um, what would be a better adject- uh, adverb for a Christian to use instead of luckily? By God's grace, okay, or what's be even easier? Uh, thankfully, or providentially. And uh, it's not that, you know, again, we want to be uh, legalistic about this, you know, and like, well, you know, so-and-so, he says luck. Um, that's silly. However, especially if you have children, you know, I, I want to encourage you, just, you know, as your pastor, to, to develop a, uh, a biblical vocabulary, uh, you know, it's easy, much easier instead of saying fortunate, because we don't believe in fortune, you know, uh, your good fortune that you got this job. No, you say thankfully, I, I got a job this year. So instead of saying luckily, say thankfully. See, Isaac probably remembers when the kids, when you were little and the girls, I know that your sisters certainly do, when uh, if anybody said luck in the home, they got a chore. You remember that? You just, you just, you grew up so holy and reformed that you never used that word. Seriously. This kid, I hardly ever even had to discipline him as a, a little one. And uh, his younger brother, on the other hand, I think before age five, had accumulated more spanks than the other three put together in their lifetime. And, uh, but he's quite a kid today. Uh, so we want to tell you, this word providence is something that should be part of our vocabulary. And, uh, and so when we talk about providence, um, we're talking about God's governance of all things. And so let's go back there again to uh, Lord's Day 10, to questions 27 and 28. And remember, this is a, a little bit of an excursus or a further explanation of that line in the Apostles' Creed, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
one of the greatest things about the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the greatest catechism in the history of mankind, is that it uh, exposits the Apostles' Creed and links the Reformation to the early church, the ancient church. That was a big swing and a miss by the Westminster Assembly. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism. It's inferior to the Heidelberg, which is almost 100 years earlier. Uh, And they failed to link themselves to the early church. Uh, And that's something that we really need to do. We don't want to give the impression that the history of the church, you know, it starts with the apostles and early fathers and then falls into heresy, and then the church isn't recovered until you know, October 31st, 1517, when Luther nails the thesis on the church door at Wittenberg. That, we don't want to do that. The church, there was Christianity during those 1,500 years. Uh, there was you know, doctrine that needed to be developed and so forth. But it's important that we re- retain the creeds. And so the catechism goes through the creed, and in that first line, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, it has that glorious answer in question 26 that says uh, that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing made the heavens and the earth and likewise upholds them by his eternal counsel and providence. Okay, then it goes on. And then it asks, what is providence? And so that picks up, we pick up at 27. Uh, let's say this again. So if you have your catechism open, uh, you'll find it in the Psalter hymnal on the back if you don't. Uh, question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and everywhere power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Not, we could also say not by luck. In fact, my youngest son, Ian, when he, when he quotes this from memory, when he always gets to the chance, he goes, not by chance or by dumb luck, uh, but from his fatherly hand. And uh, I, we talked a little bit last week about uh, the two competing, two competing worldviews uh, that are still in existence today, and uh, they were they were uh, the worldviews, philosophies that were most common in the first century. So when Paul goes to Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, the center of all philosophical learning, uh, he's dealing with people who hold to one of these two views. And these are still popular today. Uh, Epicureanism is the view. Now sometimes, before I, before I talk about these views, when, when I say Stoicism, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Stoic. So what do you think? Very solid person. What else? Solemn. Unemotional. Stiff upper lip. Hey, if the Germans bomb us, stiff upper lip. Be stoic. Right? Okay. Stoic. Not showing much emotion. Not getting too. Okay, extreme radical. Right. We're going to come back to that. 
when I say Epicureanism, this will be the more literate of you, uh, what comes to mind? Food, wine, drink, Pastor Brown. <laughs> I am, I'm an Epicurean, I admit it. I admit it. So it's terrible. I have to repent of it every day. And it's hard. But I'm just enjoying God's good common grace. But now, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Just because you enjoy God's good common things doesn't mean you're an Epicurean. There's more behind that. What I'm talking about right now, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't float away. What I'm talking about right now is some of the practical applications of these worldviews. Stoicism does not equal stiff upper lip. Epicureanism does not equal someone who appreciates God's good grace and good things and knows which fork to use. Uh, that doesn't, those are practical applications of those worldviews. What are these worldviews? This worldview is one that says uh, creator and creature are, has no distinction. So everything in the world is God. Pantheism. Pan means all things are God. Monotheism means one God. Uh, You'll sometimes hear, you know, people refer to the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I always balk at that because we're not just monotheists, we're Trinitarian, which is different. Uh, than both Islam and Judaism. Uh, But there's not just monotheism. There's also polytheism. Think of Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, many gods, Egypt, God for every little thing in the universe. Then there's pantheism, which there is no distinction between creator and creature. And the way that you uh, get power or good fortune is by getting in touch with the universe. You've got to get in touch with nature and the universe. And so I used the example last week of yoga. And I want to say again, you know, I, I don't, it's not that I think every Christian should stop doing yoga, but I do think that you need to be very careful when doing yoga. You should be careful in everything you do. You know, whatever, every book you read, movie you watch, everything, just do so, you should do so critically. And uh, in yoga, there is a lot of this going on, getting in touch with the universe. And th- th- that's false religion. It's the idea that there is no distinction between creator and creature. It's all one and the same. This is a huge uh, worldview today. Yesterday we were down at Liberty Station, my wife and I, and I saw a girl with a t-shirt that said, in the uni- in universe we trust. You know, and if we, if we say, oh, wow, I can't believe it. Well, you know what? Probably a lot of the people that we look up to in the world, in just different common grace things, believe that. You know, a lot of... Uh, uh, people in politics or who are successful businessmen uh, believe this something like this that may even be fairly conservative. Uh, it's, this, this goes both ways. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing. It's a, it's a sin thing. 
The other side is Epicureanism. Epicureanism is a form of deism. Now, what is deism? Deism was the dominant religion in the 18th century, especially amongst uh, the founding fathers of this country. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Um, uh, John Adams, well, John Adams was a universalist. Um, ben Franklin, deist. Um, they believe in God. And uh, you know, so you can find quotes from them where they're quoting scripture. And the naive evangelical will say, oh, see, they were Christians. Here's a quote. They're quoting scripture. They believe in God. Yeah, they believe in God, but it, many people don't know, Thomas Jefferson denied all of the supernatural in the Word of God and even published a version of the Bible, which is still in print today. If you go to the Jefferson Memorial, they have piles of them there that you can buy, where all of the miracles and all of the supernatural is deleted from the New Testament. Brilliant statesman, again, we don't want to swing in overreaction. So what are you saying? He, he didn't write a good policy? No. I'm not saying that. No more than I'm saying a, a pagan surgeon can't be a great surgeon to operate on your heart. Uh, he's using common grace principles. But he, when it came to religion, he was a deist. And what, are, what is deism? Deism is the idea that God exists, and he may even be something of the God of the Bible, more or less, but he's out there somewhere doing his thing, enjoying his own wine and cheese, and uh, doesn't get too involved in the affairs of this life. And so the way that you get in touch, or the way that you get power, rather, and good fortune in this life, uh, somebody last week had, made, had brought up the idea of making your own luck, uh, making your own good fortune. Well, right, that's what you do. You make your own good fortune. And you enjoy the things of this earth. This side, you might try to, you're going you're gonna to deny yourself anything that would make the world mad, that would make Mother Nature mad. This is Mother Nature. What's another big word? Gets used all the time in our society today. Karma. Karma, bad karma, man. You do something bad, it's going to come back on you. That's stoicism. That's stoicism. That's the universe being the God that you need to get in touch with. And so if something bad happens to you, it's because, ah, oh, I must have done something bad. And if you want good to happen to you, you've got to do something good. And don't upset the earth. And so you might deny yourself certain things if you feel that, ooh, the earth, the universe might get mad about this, whatever that may be, a certain kind of food, drink, whatever. Deism, on the other hand, looks at it like, hey, you know, yeah, we need to be moral people because God, who exists far away, wants us to be moral. And so you do what you think is right in your own heart and follow that. And uh, that's Immanuel Kant a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers, and uh, you know, God is far away. These are the dominant worldviews of your neighbor, of your coworkers. They go one or the other. And all of us have a sinful tendency to go one or the other. We either think, ah, God, yeah, he exists, but he's far off out there, or we become hyper-spiritual and uh, uh, you know, act as if every little thing means something. And uh, we, we go one direction or the other. 
I've seen a lot of people come to this church who were in this camp, a Christian version of this camp, coming out of some form of Pentecostalism, you know, reading um, those novels, not the Left Behind novels, what were the other ones? Uh, Frank Peretti, Frank Peretti novels. Uh, this present darkness where there's a demon under every rock. And uh, they came out of that and they're like delivered and then they over to this direction. And they stop praying, they stop reading their Bible, and maybe that's you. You've become a deist, a Calvinistic deist. And what you have to do is blow both of these out of the water because neither of them are biblical. And this side says, eh, prayer's not that important. I mean, unless you lost your keys. And, uh, you know, um, because, but God doesn't really interfere that much. And he's already got it all figured out anyway. Just enjoy what you got. Um, both of these are a denial of providence. Providence is completely different than both of these. Providence is the ever-present power of God, okay, by which he upholds us with his hand, heaven and earth. So there is a distinction between creator and creature. That, that side denies. And he so rules them that everything, herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That blows out Epicureanism. Um, Providence understands that God rules and reigns over everything, and everything that happens in this life happens Uh, Because God has foreordained it. It doesn't mean that we understand everything that happens in this life or know the reasons why God has, in fact, kept much hidden from us. And we have to understand that. And so, you know, we need to remember that when we're tempted to become angry at God because things haven't gone our way or we get some bad news, uh, that God knows what he is doing. But it it, it it is not his responsibility to reveal to us the reason why I got cancer or the reason why my loved one died or the reason why I lost my job or the reason why whatever. It is not his responsibility to reveal those things to us. And sometimes we act as if it is his responsibility. And, uh, and we have to avoid the temptation, which the devil wants us to do, to slip into then some sort of deism and say, well, who knows, who cares? You know, God's out there, and he's mean. He's uh, got a sick sense of humor. Or slip into some kind of pantheism, stoicism, and say, i got to understand exactly what this means. What this, what this means. Why did I get a flat tire today on the road? Um, we have to understand that God has things that we say, erase this, are... Hidden and things that are revealed. There is, as they used to say, Deus absconditus and Deus revelatus. What has God revealed? Everything in the Bible. Bob, you've got to be here every week. You say whatever the other people are too afraid to say, but yet they're thinking. So I appreciate that. Everything in the Bible. It wasn't, wasn't a hard question, was it? It was a softball. Um, it, he's revealed everything in the Bible. 
And, uh, but does the Bible tell you what profession you're going to have? Tell you who, who you're going to marry? No, it doesn't. There's things that are, that are hidden and that, you know, that there's no... So then what we try to do is we try, try reading the fortune cookies. You know, oh, what is God saying? You know, am I supposed to marry, you know, Sally or Sue? You know, now you're being a stoic, a pantheist when you do that. You know, um, it's not his responsibility to show you those things. Oh, well, then I guess it just doesn't matter at all. Now you're being a deist, you know, an Epicurean. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, what has God revealed? You need to marry a Christian. Okay, that just narrowed it down to that group of people in the world. Now it just comes down to wisdom. Now it just comes down to wisdom. Is she pretty? The, do you, can you live with her without her annoying you too much? Um, does she seem nice? I mean, just wisdom, wisdom principles. But what God has revealed is that she must be of the, the spouse must be of the opposite sex and be a believer. That much God has revealed. And the rest comes down to wisdom. And we can pray and ask God for wisdom. Okay, and, so, and then God, yes, we can, we can look back and see sometimes how, in fact, God providentially works something out. You know, um, providentially worked out that I would meet my wife because uh, we had moved from one city to another. My dad had bought a couple properties, and we lived in one, which was in the school district where my wife had lived her whole life. We were only there for six months, and then we moved to the other property, which was actually in a better school district. But along the way, I met my wife, and so I stayed in that school. And, uh, yeah, now I can look back. But at the time, I wasn't like, this means something. You know, what is God teaching me here? What's going on? You know, that you're going to drive yourself crazy doing that, and, you ha- and we have no business doing that. All right. So you get that idea. And, but it also, we have to understand, when we think of the, the bad things that happen to us, that God knows what he is doing. And uh, this is what, when we talk about uh, the difficult things in the world, evil things in the world, and yet God, if he's in control of all those th- of everything, which that is what he has revealed in his word, he's in control of all things. Give me a Bible verse that reveals that. There. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bob, rocking it. The rest of you all turn to Ephesians 1.11 because you didn't say it. That's your penance. Turn to Ephesians 1.11 because you all need to know this. Okay? You're Christians. You need to know this. It's not enough just to say, well, I know it says it in there somewhere. You need to go, be able to point to it and say, that's the spot. That's not me being mean. That is a godly pastoral reproof and rebuke. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, pastors are told to reprove and rebuke and exhort with all patience. And so I'm being patient. You don't want to see me rebuke without patience. This thing will come flying. And so, Ephesians 1.11. Somebody read that, because this is important. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There it is. When I say foreordains whatsoever that comes to pass, what Bible verse is that from? Anybody know? <laughs> You're all relying on Bob now. 
Where does that language come from? Anybody know? God foreordains whatsoever it comes to pass. It's actually, that language is actually the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But it's just shorthand for passages like Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, let that sink in for a second. If God works all things according to the counsel of his will, does that mean God is responsible for 9-11? Does that mean God is responsible for that guy that took a truck and drove down the boardwalk in Nice, France, mowing down people and killing them? Okay, but did God allow it? Is, is God the one who is uh, in control of all things? And if he's in control of all things, why did he allow it? For his glory, yeah. These are good answers, but we don't know why. And this is where um, a, a very important verse is Deuteronomy 29.29. Someone would turn there, because this, is, uh, this was one of Calvin's favorite passages. If, you, if somebody would turn there and somebody read it. I said loud. Right. So the secret things, God hidden, belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us. What has he revealed? Well, he's revealed that he is good, that he is not evil. He's revealed that he's holy, that he hates evil, that he condemns evil. But he's also revealed that he is in control of all things, that uh, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why he did that, allowing something that's evil that he condemns, that he will judge, uh, is part of his hidden nature and will. And that's the secret thing that he has not revealed to us. And we become curious. We want to know, you know, but it's not our place as finite creatures to try to climb into the mind of our creator. We can only know our creator as he has revealed himself. We can't know him in the depths of his being. We can only know him through his acts and through what he has revealed you know, uh, when I mean acts, I'm talking about the redemptive acts through redemptive history. And so this is an important passage. And this is what gets at what we sometimes call the, the doctrine of concurrence. The fact that uh, God is holy, and yet he can use evil acts of men for his own glory. And most of the time, we don't know why or how and how that all works out. We don't know. There are times when you can look back in history and see how God used something. So there's lots of examples. Last week, I used the example of Joseph, which is you know, the classic example from the Old Testament. But also think, of, for example, of uh, God raising up the Assyrians, allowing the Assyrians to become this powerful and ruthless, detestable army that did terrible things, and yet God used them as his instrument to bring judgment 
against his people with whom he was in covenant when they had broken the covenant treaty. Same thing with the Babylonians. Um, where God can accomplish a great good through the acts of sinful men, the wicked acts. And it's important that we get this because I think of 9-11. When 9-11 happened, which was, you know, people in previous generation before me uh, remember where they were when they heard the news that uh, President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. And, you know, in my generation, uh, we all remember where we were when we heard the news that the Twin Towers had fallen. And uh, I was in seminary and, um, you know, showed up to Hebrew class with one of my colleagues and, you know, it was devastating. And and then the whole world was trying to figure all this out and the church was trying to figure all this out. And the churches, you know, people were, the churches were full everywhere, all over the United States. They were full for about two weeks. And, uh, and, And people, it's amazing. You can see how when tragedy strikes, all of a sudden, you mean, you mean, we're not omnipotent? We don't have all power in the United States and we're vulnerable? Uh, all of a sudden, people are looking to God and churches were full everywhere. And uh, I remember hearing Conan O'Brien say he went to church. And uh, went to, you know, he was raised Catholic and hadn't been to church in years and went. Okay, but people are trying to figure out why would God allow something like that? And one of the answers that was given was that, well, God, doesn't, God didn't see it coming. God is good and loving. And they want to protect God's love. They want to protect his goodness. So to do that, they say, well, uh, we, we just have to say that he is not all-powerful. There are some things that he can't do. And uh, there's a whole theology behind that called open theism, process theology, where God is still basically processing and growing, and uh, he, he's, his, the, the future is open to him. Some say, well, he's allowed the future to be open. He doesn't know all things. But that's all hogwash because uh, if, if, if there are things that God can't control, then there's something bigger than God, and God's not God. And, and not only that, but that's not what the Bible has revealed to us. We've got to go with what God has revealed. See, this is our puny attempt at trying to solve a conundrum. The opposite end is usually the agnostic and those who are looking for excuses not to bow the knee to Jesus Christ will often say, well, if God's all-powerful, he must not be all-loving. And, and I get that. I get that objection. It's, a, it's, a, it's just the opposite of saying, well, he's all-loving but lacks all-power. Well, the opposite would be to say he has all-power, but he's not all-good, and he has a wicked sense of humor. And there are a lot of people who believe that and who are mad at God and uh, curse God and uh, if he exists, you know, he's just, why doesn't he fix it? How come he doesn't cure cancer? How come he allows, you know, that six-year-old girl, Ava Bassett, to have leukemia? You know, how come he... And basically what that person is doing is they are taking God and putting him on the stand and saying, we're going to judge you. We're going to judge you. I'm going to stand over you, me, the creature, over you, the creator. I'm going to tell you what is wise, what is right, what is wrong, and you are going to be on the stand and answer questions as I prosecute you. And uh, it's man's attempt to try to put God on trial. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. If, we look at the, if we're going to go with the Bible, if, we're going to, if, we, if this is true, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then okay, it's all true, and we have to go with what he has revealed. And in that case, 
we have to see how the Bible also reveals the fact that God is both holy and good at the same time. And he can, in his justice, hold people responsible for evil acts that he allowed. And if he didn't do this, none of you would be saved. So let's turn real quick to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And uh, Peter's first sermon at the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, So, it's a great sermon. It's, you know, redemptive historical, all about Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so he's preaching his text is Joel 2, but then he draws in Psalm 16, Psalm 110, preaching from Christ from the Old Testament, the way preaching should be. And uh, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Uh, Being therefore exalted uh, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you yourselves are seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if we back up, actually, to verse 23, that's where I wanted to start. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the lawless hands of men. Now, just think about that for a second. So, was it God's intention for his son to be crucified? Was there any other way for our guilt to be removed? No. We have to have, someone has to pay for the crime. Someone has to pay for the sins. Because God is just. It would be unjust to not punish a murderer, to let him go. But, the way that he is crucified is through the lawless act, false trial, uh, false conviction, uh, essentially torture and murder of the Son of God. He uses the sinful acts of men for his own greater good. And we say, well, how can that be? Well, you've got to remember, God is infinite. We are finite. God's knowledge, we say, is archetypal, uh, he, and he is omniscient. Uh, we, you know, have only a, a limited creaturely knowledge of those things that God has revealed, both in his word and in nature. And uh, we, we are limited. Um, and so as we look at these things, this is where the doctrine of concurrence comes into play, that there are things that are hidden from our sight, and yet what God has revealed is that he is so good that he is able to take the sinful acts 
of evil men and used them for his purposes that bring him glory. And we need to rest in that. There we see the proof and the evidence of God's love for us and that he works all things for our good. And then when it comes to the the smaller things in life, smaller things, cancer, leukemia, but that is smaller than facing eternal damnation, um, we can rest in the fact that, as Romans 8.28 says, we know that God works all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I don't know how. I don't know how. You might be able to, I was talking to my friend Caleb, uh, Pastor Bassett, and he was telling me, confiding in me, how you know, over the last uh, several weeks, as his six-year-old daughter has been in treatment for leukemia, the ways in which the Lord has worked on his heart, how he's been able to receive gifts that he ordinarily would say, no, no, thank you, and, and how he's been humbled, and how he has... Uh, you know, cried out to the Lord in, in, in prayer. And, and there are sometimes ways in which we can see how God is using something in our life, but there's even then great mystery and many things that we don't know. And by all means, we would rather that thing not to happen. And, you know, and then we have to say, well, why did God allow this? How come he doesn't solve it? You know, well, it's not because he is mean and wicked and evil. It's because we live in a cursed world. But the story, the way the story goes is that's not the end of the story. God has promised that there's coming a time, as we heard today, when there will be no suffering, when there will be no evil. And that's what we have to remember, that this life ultimately is not permanent because of sin, because of the curse. And there's something to which we look forward that is greater than this world and this life. It's the resurrected earth. This is all temporary. Everything we have, all your relationships, hopes and dreams, family, all of that, ultimately is temporary. And it's in a broken world that's frustrated and hurt by sin. And yet God, in his goodness and in his mercy and grace, is able to use even those things somehow for our good. Sometimes we can see ways in which he does that. Most of the time we can't. But what we do have are his promises. And those are like lights in the fog. I don't look at what's God teaching me right now at this moment. Rather, I have to look at his promise and say, I know that he will work this somehow for my good. I know that though he slay me, yet I shall live. I will see my Redeemer at last because Christ has been raised from the dead. And you bank on those promises. You hold on those promises. And not only that, but it should bring us great comfort to know that if he works all things according to the counsel of his will, that means that the, the, the cancer, the leukemia, wasn't just a bad bounce of the ball. I mean, well, how frightening would that be to live in a world that's just totally determined by luck or totally determined by chance or totally determined on how connected you are with the universe? Rather, we live in a world that is governed and sustained by God, who upholds all things by his providence and rules them. And that God has become your father through Jesus Christ. And so you go to him, you have the opportunity to go to him as a child goes to a father. And not only asking for him to change your circumstances, which he might not, but also asking him for the grace to accept the things that he has given you. Because grace is not for getting out of trials. Grace is for going through trials. And his grace is sufficient. As the Apostle Paul said, he pleaded with the Lord three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
And so we can rejoice even in sufferings and persecutions and all those things. things we don't know the reasons why God is hidden, but we can, we can rejoice and take comfort in the things that God has revealed. And that's why the, the catechism goes on. In question 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Let's say it together. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. All right, we have four minutes for any questions or comments. Right. So I see a lot of it that if you can actually encourage them with that doctrine. Oh, yeah. Start at, oh, this is what happened. Right. Yeah, that we call that newspaper theology. Or today we should call it Fox CNN theology. Looking, watching the news and with your Bible open and trying to figure out what's unfolding. And that stuff is rampant. You know, dispensationalism is rampant. Um, in the Republican Party, very much. Uh, keep that in mind. You know that it's most Christians you will meet in the Republican Party are your garden variety dispensationalists, and um, that kind of we have to be very wary and careful of that. Also, of saying, well, this happened because God is angry. There was a lot of that that came out after nine eleven. There were you know uh, popular preachers saying, well, this is because of New York's liberal agenda. This is because of the uh, gays and lesbians in New York City. People are coming on TV and saying these things. And uh, that's false prophecy is what that is. That is false prophecy. And what does that do to the gospel? The gospel is, is to be announced to everybody. The dirtiest and the lowliest. It's for all. And uh, when we start saying, well, God brought judgment on this town because of this, it was the same thing at Hurricane Katrina when it hit the south. It was like, well, it's because, you know, uh, New Orleans is so liberal. Um, th- you know, that, I want to distance myself as far away from that stuff and condemn it as, as false teaching and false prophecy. We, we can't say that. If that's the case, then we could say the same thing about everybody when they get some sickness. Well, the reason you got, that is Job's counselor. Have not we read the book of Job, where Job has all this disaster happen to him, and then his counselors come and say, well, it must be because you have, there's these things in your life, you know, that God is angry about, and you're under a curse. Well, if you're in Christ, you're not under a curse. You live in a world that is cursed, and that means that we will suffer, the, the promise of the gospel is not that you're never going to get a disease in this life or that you're never going to lose your job or that you're never going to have heartache. The promise of the gospel is that your sins are forgiven, you'll be raised again from the dead, and God who is your judge has now become your father. 
And so we have to be really careful when we see evil acts happening in the world or in our lives from either trying to read them as some sort of prophecy in Scripture that has not yet unfolded or from saying, well, this is God's judgment. Um, that, again, it's a denial of De- Deuteronomy 29.29, God hidden, God revealed. This is why theology is so important for us. Theology is so important. It's not just sitting around asking how many angels dance on the head of a pin. It's the stuff of ordinary life, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, to how you work during the day, to how you play, to the decisions you make with your money, to everything. Because you live your life quorum deo, in the, before the face of God. But we need to know that God. We've got to grow. It's not enough just to go through Pastor Brown's new members class and then never crack open the Heidelberg Catechism again. We have to constantly grow in these things. We've got to take time and, and develop as disciples. And because then we're also going to pass that on to the next generation. And we're also going to help other people. You see, sometimes we're so selfish in the way that we learn. We, you know, we, we, get, we come here, we get all excited, because, wow, I'm getting reformed. And then after about 18 months, we get kind of burned out, because eh, I got it all figured out. And, uh, and then we stop. Well, you know what? We need to continue to grow and learn. Because this is good to go over again. Because more tragedy is going to happen in life, either personally or in the world. And how are we going to be able to explain it to other people? We need to be well-versed in it. And we need to help our children when they begin to ask, Dad, why did this happen? So that's my encouragement to all of us to continue learning and to continue, uh, to continue studying and uh, to continue coming to catechism class so that we are able to know what God has revealed and be able to take comfort in that. All right, we've got to stop there, and I'll stick around for, uh, for questions if you have any more. Father, we thank you for your word and what you have revealed. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to continue grow, to grow in our knowledge of it in such a way, Lord, that you are glorified and that we are able to point other people who are in need to the truth and to do so in love. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to think about your providence. And may it comfort us, Lord, as we go through this week, as we go through our lives, as tragedy strikes, as good things happen. May we give you all praise, the author of all good and all that is holy. And for that which is difficult and hard, Lord, may we have patience to know that you are able to make all things work together for our good and that you are in control at all times, and that we are so completely in your hand that without your will we can neither move nor be moved nor ever be separated from your love. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.